Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like inconsiderate fucktards. This is your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Black, Reaper Sutherland, Luke Flytalker, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troller of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. This is Over the Culture, and you know what I don't fucking like? Dumb assholes. Dumb fucking inconsiderate pieces of shit fucktards who don't care about people's space or time or none of the above. So I used to live in Stone Mountain and it's been about a month, a little over a month since I lived in Stone Mountain and I go back to Stone Mountain to get my hair cut. And I went this past Friday to get my hair cut and my barber said, you know, she had to run some errands. So I was like, okay, that buys me some time to go shop. I, I want to get some new threads. So I go to the DK on Memorial Drive in Stone Mountain and I thought that it was a good store. I thought uh, they had good deals, some some decent threads, some decent, you know, shirts and pants and sweaters, some some decent, you know, casual shoes to wear. And uh, this past experience was aggravating, to say the least. So how about nobody helped me? None of the assistants assisted. No one greeted me. No one said shit to me. Uh, there were several assistants on the floor and they're helping other people. And, uh, you know, as they're walking the aisles, and they didn't even bat an eye. No one stopped. I, I take that back. One lady, one lady. She actually said some things to me. I She asked me what I was looking for. I told her she pointed me in the direction. And, you know, her assistance was really non-existent. You might as well have not talked to me at all, lady, because she reached out to me later as I'm crossing the aisles. And she asked me, so did you find did you find it? Did you? And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I asked her about different things. And she said, did you find it? And I was like, what do you mean? And she just went on to the next customer. She's like, all right. So I get the things that I was looking for, some of the things, and I'm going to check out. And there are only two people in front of me. I'm thinking, no big deal. Not a problem. Oh, I forgot the law of niggardry. Niggas do not give a fuck about your time, your space, your life. They don't give a fuck. Actually, niggas thrive on inconveniencing you. Now, there were only two people in front of me. And the first person in line, it looks like he's getting his Easter suit together, his Easter outfit. And as he's in the line at the register, one of the assistants is going back and forth, uh, giving him different shirts, giving him different suit jackets. And he's basically deliberating whether or not, oh, should I go with this one? Is this the right size? And nigga, you are at the register. You've been talking to this baddie fucking piece of shit assistant the whole time I was in the store. I noticed. I saw it in my peripherals. You've been talking to her this whole fucking time and you're at the fucking register where you pay. Will you make your transaction? You're at the register. And Betty, dumbass assistant, is still fucking assisting you. 
and you waited, you're still trying to figure out, nigga, you couldn't do this before you got in the line, and it took this dumb motherfucker about a good 20 minutes, we're just standing there, and the person in front of me, she's not tripping, I'm just taking four second deep breaths, it's pissing me off talking about it, retelling the story, but man, I gotta let you know how I feel about dumbass inconsiderate fucktards and this dumbass inconsiderate fucktard had me heated. I wanted to slap his fucking hat off. This motherfucker. Oh, this one will do. Going to my stupid Easter program now on Sunday to my stupid ass church. Uh, with my stupid-ass kids and possibly my stupid-ass uh, baby mama. Yeah. Fuck you, your baby mama and your dumb-ass kids, you dumb son of a bitch. I hate you and your face. I fucking don't like you. I don't even know you. And I want to piss on your fucking grave. Damn, did I say that on Easter Sunday? Oh, tough titty, so what? So this dumb-ass piece of shit gets out. And then the next person, the next person in front of me she makes it to the register and she asks the cashier if they had this outfit in a different color she asked the cashier that after walking past several assistants who she could have looked out looked for and asked this very simple question she wanted to know if this outfit that she got from the back of DNK. She wanted to know if this outfit that she got from the back of the store was in a certain color because she was in here a couple weeks ago and she saw it in this color and she's in here today and she doesn't see that color. Do you have any in stock in the back, cashier? She's asking the cat, the person at the register who only deals with transactions. The cashier is not on the floor. She's not talking about merchandise. She's there to accept the money for the merchandise and give change for the merchandise. So the cashier promptly asks, she gets on the walkie-talkie and asks an assistant to come up and to see if they had this piece of merchandise in her particular color. So that takes about a good another 10, 15 minutes. And then she wants to know if her military ID will help with some kind of fucking sale or some kind of fucking discount. Questions upon questions upon questions upon fucking questions. It's always motherfuckers right in front of me. Always. Who have to take all day with their fucking scratch offs, who have to take all day with their dumb fucking questions to deliberate what kind of cheeseburger they want at McDonald's. Whoa, do they still put cheese on these things? <laughs> I swear, motherfuckers get up to the front of the line and they just lose all sense of every fucking thing. They ask questions that have nothing to do with the fucking scenario. Hey, what's the square root of pie? So, idiot number two gets the fuck out of there finally and it's my turn now I had two things I had a woolen jacket it was sporty sporty for the season and it's it wasn't too heavy on the wool it was perfect for a windy day in the springtime I had that 
and I had some smell good. Two things. I had my debit card ready and I was ready to just get the fuck out of there. Swipe and I'm done. I'm gonna make it real easy for you this time, lady, cashier, woman. I'm gonna make it real easy. So how about the woolen jacket that I had didn't have a price tag on me. So even though I only have two things, I'm not asking dumbass questions. I'm not look, checking for the right size, for the right shirt, for the right pants or to match my outfit. No, I knew what I wanted. I knew exactly what the fuck I wanted. I had it in my hand, but she wanted to make sure it was the right price. And I told the lady, it's $8. It was in the clearance rack. It's $8. But no, she had to get on the walkie talkie and ask for an assistant. And I was just like, oh my God. So uh, which assistant are you looking for? Are you looking for the Middle Eastern lady out there in the back talking to a customer? Are you talking about the brother, the bald head brother staring at shirts right here, not talking to anyone? And uh, she didn't even respond. She didn't say shit to me. She didn't respond to my question. And at this point, I was, I just left that shit in the counter. Like, you know what? You got it. You got it. I fucking hate you, Stone Mountain. And the reason I'm bringing Stone Mountain shit into this is because Stone Mountain thrives on nigga shit. Supreme niggatry at its finest. I fucking hated it. And you know what? Stone Mountain was the first thing I knew about when I moved down here. So I couldn't compare it to anything. And a part of me, every time I came home from work, my soul was just decreased. I feel like my nuts sag like, oh, I'm going back to this fucking shithole. And I try to be positive in most scenarios. I try to be positive in all scenarios, try to look at the bright side of things. But damn, it's niggas and they niggas shit. And I I just, it's just so ripe of fuckery that you just get to a point of resigning. Like, this is what it is. I can't do anything about it. They love the the ratchet ass sisters. I can't even call them sisters. No, y'all don't. mm, Nah, fuck y'all. The ratchet ass bras, the ratchet bitches in Stone Mountain. They get a hard on for unemployed niggas, uneducated, unemployed niggas. And I don't fit that prototype. I'm gainfully employed. And I know a little bit about a lot of things, a little bit about a lot of things. More so than your typical Stone Mountain Negro. I couldn't hold a conversation with none of these motherfuckers. Actually, flip that around. These motherfuckers couldn't have a conversation with me. I feel like I have to dumb myself down just to address certain motherfuckers, uh, just for them to understand what the fuck I'm saying. And I was only in Stone Mountain for a couple of hours. And just that couple of hours reminded me like, no, this ain't for me. Fuck that shit. Fuck this shit. Mm. I'd rather be in Doraville, Snoraville, Boraville. Fill me up with Chloraville, Georgia, which is where I currently live. Stone Mountain, and especially the D and K in Stone Mountain on Memorial Drive, eat a D-I-K. And that's why you have that going out of business sign in front of your fucking outlet. 
You should be going out of business. You don't deserve to do business. You can do business. You do shitty business. You're bad, DNKO Memorial Drive. You're horrible. You should never have been business. Should have never, ever, ever. Matter of fact, no one in Stone Mountain deserves jobs. I hate all of you niggas. I can't believe Donald Glover came from Stone Mountain. I mean, I could only imagine. And, and he came up in the 90s, early 2000s living in Stone Mountain. And so I'm sure motherfuckers were even more ignorant. God. No one deserves job. None of you deserve good things in Stone Mountain. I swear. Not just like all you motherfuckers should be getting unemployment checks. Not even that. Like y'all should just not be having anything because y'all are fucking assholes and you thrive on ignorance. You respect ignorance. Love the dusty dope boy. Spits on the intellectual. What kind of bizarro world was I in? And I'm glad I survived that shit. Fuck an unemployment check. Y'all need to receive mental instability checks. Stone Mountain niggas. I feel bad enough that I spent this much time on my show to t- address these dumb motherfuckers. But enough of those dumb niggas. How about this Lil Nas Egg shit? What's that about, man? He He's uh, doing some devil uh cosplay uh satanic shit uh twerking on satan and uh now he's got these blood nike air max that he customized and uh he's i mean as you could imagine as expected he caught a lot of flack all over the internet streets um i mean to do something like that even in 2021 it was a it it was a bit much it was a bit much uh now as we all know he's a gay man Uh, i mean it's very apparent just look at him and you know the video feature i don't even know the name of the song i i just listened to it earlier today and how about the song just sucks i'm i'm mad about him for like having money put into such a production because it looks really elaborate uh it's a lot of touch up on it um the song is not I, i'm not a little nas x fan uh, i only listen to old town road or whatever the fuck it was called out of spite i listened to it because i knew it was pissing off those hillbilly they hated that shit this man was getting all these acclaims and awards in the country field. And they're like, no, no, keep that nigga shit in hip hop. They love segregating. So I only put that in rotation. I never selectively, actively looked for a song, but it was on the radio. I was like, yeah, blare that shit. Piss these white people off. But the song sucks. And Nike suing him. And rightfully so, uh, in his response to that is, oh, they're trying to shut down the creativity. And like, bro, it's not even that, player. You know, they made 666 pairs of these things. And there's a, a symbol of Baphomet. And he, I guess the creators of this customized shoe, they actually put their own human blood into the air pockets, uh, adding more goriness to it. And... Dude, 
you put their label, you put their swoosh logo on these shoes and try to claim it as your own, man. This is Nike. This isn't just some regional local shit. This isn't even just American shit. Nike is worldwide and has been for a very long time, man. So, I mean, I know you've made a lot of money, but damn, man, you got a lot of rich dummies out here. What made you think that was going to pass, player? Maybe if this was on some hush shit, just very exclusive. Oh, yeah, I only, you know, made this for five people. And, you know, but dude, you were trying to make it seem like you were partnering a deal with Nike. And Nike had to step in like, no, nah, man, we didn't green like this shit. We don't want no parts of this shit. Matter of fact, nigga, we taking you to court. Come up off that bag with your gay ass. That's what Nike did so yeah man i mean i'm not knocking your hustle clearly you got people behind you man clearly you got a fan base people are following you uh, are fans of your music i'm not one of them but just play it smart man you can't use somebody else's logo how would you like it if someone redid one of your songs or did something and or not even one of your songs somebody just made a song and said yep I'm a little not this is a little Nas X and you had nothing to do with it. That's not too far of a comparison because that's essentially what you did. Over the week I was able to see Bad Trip on Netflix and man it gets my approval. Starring Eric Andre, Happy Birthday, Lil Rel and Tiffany Haddish and it exceeded my expectations. And I, I, I will say also, it's better than Coming to America, this last one. It's way better. I don't actually mind watching Bad Trip again. It was that funny. And if you're familiar with Eric Andre's uh, style of humor, he is from the same school of Andy Kaufman, Sasha Baron Cohen, as far as blurring the line between fact and like fiction and nonfiction, like what is reality and what is a comedy bit. And from the reactions of the people involved in the movie, I feel like a lot of them weren't in the know of what the hell was going on. And Bad Trip is essentially uh, a jackass movie with a storyline. Uh, now, the jackass crew, they put out I want to say three theatrical releases and they were just really extended versions of the TV show on MTV. Whereas with Bad Trip, it uses a lot of that jackass uh, humor as far as doing pranks and, uh, you know, slapstick style of comedy. But at the same time, it actually had a storyline. And like I said, it's on Netflix and I recommend it. I actually don't mind watching it again. And, um, <sighs> funnier than coming to america even with all of those stars involved also i saw king kong versus godzilla and i don't need to watch that shit again i just first of all king kong is a simp not a fan i hate the backstory of king kong and i just never cared for him never been big on godzilla but i will take godzilla over king kong because he's a little bit more gangster and I, I really passively watched the movie because it just 
it got convoluted not too far into it. They, there was a Robo Godzilla and motherfuckers were flying and shooting lasers and like, what the fuck is going on? You know, I had it playing on HBO Max while I was working on the show and taking notes for happened in the 90s and just planning for other things in general. Um, and throughout the movie it just like nothing caught me every time i looked up it's like oh this uh, i mean it had some cool fighting scenes whatever man it just i i think maybe this is my age but i i really value storylines and when it comes to the fictional shit i just can't buy into it that deep that heavy man they had these uh uh faux cnn broadcast of oh godzilla is taking over the town and it's just like okay i get it you're trying to tie in reality with this movie and it just it just didn't do it for me and uh i guess you got to be a fan of that genre of that universe um the the king kong or godzilla's but i don't know what's a king to a god over the week young Dolph announces that he's retiring for the rat game and uh, based on history, when a ra- whenever a rapper says that shit, uh, you know, I call shenanigans. I remember Too Short said it on Cocktails back in, what, 95, 96? Here we are. Bitch! Um, I- I'm a fan of Young Flippa. And I like to think this is just Cap. But hey, only time will tell. And just recently actually over the weekend we find out that dmx was in grave condition he was in critical condition uh, after having a stroke uh and the last i heard he's back to breathing on his own they said that uh he was on a breath on a not a breathalyzer um he was on one of those uh breathing apparatuses respirator yeah but they, they said that he was taken off of that and now he's bringing it on his own. And man, uh, all the well wishes, uh, good energy, positive energy sent his direction to him and his family, man. Uh, DMX is a legend in the game. He's one of my favorite rappers ever, just like most rap fans, most hip hop fans. And uh, he is the first rapper to go platinum on two different albums in the same year man that's how dope he is and i still i think to this day he's the only rapper i don't know if anyone else has done that uh make two albums in the same year and they both go platinum i mean that's just not normal who who the fuck does that in music in general i have to look in the archives to see but man you know he dropped it's dark and hell is hot early 98 and then later in 98 he dropped flesh of my flesh blood of my blood which was a double album and uh flesh of my flesh blood of my blood is a great album but i was more a fan of the debut it's dark and hell is hot and that's got the bangers man i i played the fuck out of that all summer 98 when dmx came out man he was scorching he was on features with Bad Boy with the locks and Lil' Kim, uh, uh, LL Cool J. He did the uh, the verse in 4321 and everybody was just in awe. Like, oh my God, this guy with this energy, we had never seen it before. He was new, he was fresh, man. He was unique, he had his own sound, he had his own style and we loved it, we still love it, man. A lot of his shit is timeless, man. 
most of it is timeless. So I hope he gets to where he needs to be in life. Uh, it's unfortunate, all the things that have transpired throughout his life. But man, from what we know of Earl Simmons, AKA DMX, he's a warrior. He's been through a lot of strife, man. And uh, this is just another hurdle for him to get over. So, man, positive energy for the X, man. So it's April 4th, and quite a few things happened on April 4th. In 1988, James Brown appeared on CNN after allegedly assaulting his wife with a lead pipe and shooting at her car. And during the interview with Sonya Friedman, Brown shot at song titles of his own songs instead of answering the questions. And that is on YouTube. It's a... It's an instant classic, and it's fucking hilarious. Oh my God, he's got these blue blocker, uh, golden girl retirement home in Miami Beach uh, sunglasses, and he is just, he, he looks like he's lit. He's either drunk, high, or both, and he's shouting lyrics to his songs when the lady's asking him questions, and he's low-key flirting with her. And she's, I remember she, the lady asked him, so why do the ladies love you, James? And he's like, because I look good, smell good, and I make love good. And he gave her that look. And it's just like, man, player, 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 player. R.I.P. to the legend, man. So that happened in 1988. In 1992, TBS, uh, the Saturday afternoon slash early evening World Championship Wrestling Program is renamed WCW Saturday Night. In uh, 95, Montel Jordan releases This Is How We Do It. And that was a blockbuster single. The single might have superseded the actual album. Uh, the other release from that album was something for the honeys. I know you OGs know about that. And this is how we do it. That was one of those summer anthems of 95. So, yeah, that album was released April 4th in 95. In 2001, on April 4th, That's My Bush premieres on Comedy Central. And it was a short-lived spoof sitcom uh, based off of George W., who was uh, the president at the time. And like I said, it was short-lived. It only lasted a season and it's a creation by Matt Parker, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, uh, the creators of South Park. And if it's worth watching, if you're a fan of those guys, it has their sense of humor embedded in there. And, uh, you know, the catchphrase was one of these days, Laura, I'm going to punch you in the face. So yeah, That's My Bush was released in 2001 on this date. In 2009, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony took place, welcoming new inductees Little Anthony and the Imperials, Bobby Womack, Jeff Beck as a solo artist, Run DMC, and Metallica. And Metallica, citing the drama surrounding Blondie, Black Sabbath, and Van Halen's inductions, includes Cliff Burton and Jason Newstead, both former bassists for the band in the in the induction. Newstead also performs with the band in its first rendition as a five-piece band featuring two bass guitarists. In 1997, Chasing Amy premieres in theaters, directed by Kevin Smith. It's uh, another one of those Kevin Smith, Jay and Silent Bob, part of that universe. And I remember watching that in high school. So yeah, that came out in 97. In 2014, on April 4th, Captain America, Winter Soldier premieres. Uh, one of those Marvel marvelous marvel movies 
but later I'm going to be talking about WrestleMania 9. That aired on April 4th in 1993. It was part of a transition. It was a transitional period for WWF because they're trying to veer away from the Hogan era, which dominated all throughout the 80s and early 90s. And Hulk Hogan is involved in this pay-per-view, but he's in a tag team with Brutus the Barber Beefcake going up against Money, Inc. for the tag team belts. And they didn't win. Uh, Money, Inc. won. They kept their belts. And, you know, it, it wouldn't have made sense to make Hulk Hogan a tag team champ anyways. Uh, even though I'm a Hogan fan, I wanted him to win at that time, you know, looking back on it as an adult, it totally makes sense because this was the guy, your bread and butter, this is the biggest star in the industry for years and now he's relegated to a tag team title? Nah, Hogan should never win a tag team title. He's a, he's a meteor. You can't put one of those little rinky dink tag team titles on, on something like that. He needs an asteroid belt. So that was one of the main events, but the main main event was Bret Hart versus Yokozuna. Bret Hart was the, was the world heavyweight champion at the time, and he was supposed to be like the new face, taking the baton away from Hogan. You know, they were starting to focus on smaller competition. You know, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon, gone were the days of Ultimate Warrior and Savage and Hulk Hogan, you know, these big uh, bodybuilder esque bodies man and uh they wanted to focus more on the skill set as opposed to these lumbering giants just doing two or three moves in a, in a match and macho man was also involved in this pay-per-view but he was a commentator he was a ringside commentator along with bobby heenan and jim ross good old jr and this was jim ross's first foray in wwf he had just left wcw and this was his introduction to WWF and you know a lot of people myself included consider him the greatest wrestling commentator ever some may beg to differ but hey I got a strong argument for JR and it's a younger JR and the Wrestlemania 9 took place in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace and overall the pay-per-view wasn't received well because a lot of people myself included didn't take too kindly to the gradual uh, inv invisibility of Hulk Hogan you know we started to see less and less of him and for this pay-per-view he actually just popped up a couple months prior or maybe a month prior um, but yeah it's announced by Bobby Heenan Jim Ross and uh, Macho Man, and they're all wearing togas. It's 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 Roman themed. It's it's in Caesar's Palace, and this was kind of getting close to the end for Macho Man with WWF because he was getting aggravated uh, by not performing. You know, he wanted to be a wrestler, and Vince was basically taking the horse out in the back and having him shot, and so there was a rift between Macho Man and Vince. Uh, because he's like, look, man, I'm more than just someone who can call these matches. I, I like, dude, I, I was a main eventer. What are you doing, man? Are you trying to edge me out? And, you know, he, he tried to do make the most out of it. But ultimately, he got frustrated and said, fuck this shit. I'm going to WCW. So, yeah, WrestleMania 9. More on that later.
today in sports history. In 1974, Hank Aaron ties Babe Ruth's home run record by hitting his 714th in Cincinnati facing Jack Billingham. In 1983, the 45th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship is held. North Carolina State beats Houston 54-52. Wolfpack win with a buzzer-beating dunk by Lorenzo Charles off a desperation 30-foot shot from Derek Wittenberg. In 1985, Tulane University cancels its basketball season amid scandal. In 1986, Wayne Gretzky sets NHL record with 213th point of the season. In 1988, the 50th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship is held. Kansas beats Oklahoma 83-79. Jayhawks power forward Danny Manning is named the tournament's most outstanding player. In 1989, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar plays his last NBA game in Seattle. In 1993, the 12th NCAA Women's Basketball Championship is held. Texas Tech beats Ohio State 84-82. Future Hall of Famer forward Cheryl Swoops is the most outstanding player. In 1994, the 56th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship is held. Arkansas beats Duke 76-72. It's the Razorbacks' first title and first title game. And on that same day in 1994, LA Dodger Daryl Strawberry begins substance abuse treatment. In 2005, the 67th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship is held. North Carolina beats Illinois 75-70. It's the Tar Heels' fourth national championship. In 2006, the 25th NCAA Women's Basketball Championship is held. Maryland beats Duke 78-75 in overtime. It's the Terrapins' first national title. Laura Harper is the most outstanding player. In 2011, it's the 73rd NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. Connecticut beats Butler 53-41. Huskies point guard Kimball Walker scores 16 points. And in 2016, the 78th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship is held. Villanova defeats North Carolina 77-74. Wildcats guard Phil Booth scores 20 points. And that was my half-assed sports report. Coming up, I'm going to go over WrestleMania 9, brother. We'll be black after these messages. Today's birthdays for April 4th. Happy 30th birthday to American actress and singer Jamie Lynn Spears. Turning 37 today is retired American basketball player Sean May. Happy 38th birthday to American basketball player Ben Gordon. Also turning 38 today is American comedian Eric Andre. Happy 40th birthday to American rapper Currency. Turning 42 today is American actress Natasha Lyonne. Happy 44th birthday to American mixed martial artist Stephen Bonner. Turning 46 today is American baseball player Scott Rowland. Keep rolling, 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 rolling. Happy 48th birthday to American singer-songwriter Kelly Price. Turning 49 today is American singer-songwriter and actress Jill Scott. Fine. Turning 50 today is American actor, producer, and poet Malik Youssef. Turning 51 today is Canadian actor and producer Barry Pepper. Turning 56 today is American actor, producer, and screenwriter Robert Downey Jr. Happy 57th birthday to American actor, producer, and screenwriter David Cross. Turning 61 today is Nigerian-Australian actor and producer Hugo Weaving. Turning 62 today is American actor and screenwriter Phil Morris. And turning 77 today is American actor, director, producer, and screenwriter Mr. Incredible, Mr. Coach himself, Craig T. Nelson.
think I hear him shooting and treat me like I'm half mutant. I redesign internal workings of revolutions, noise polluting, convoluted riot looters, religious zealots, Hail Mary's hallelujahs. I'm crafted to be callous, no laughter for your malice. They want to catch me sleeping like for Hampton on a mattress, a walking target practice. Black Lives Matter, I'm on the stairway to heaven reaching for a ladder. Public enemy number one, under the sun. I was born coming out of the womb, under a gun. Elephant in the middle, taking up all the room. Couldn't walk down the streets for the neighborhood platoons. Back into the time frame, following the present. History repeats itself, teaching us an early lesson. Cause they weren't no citizens, or an out immigrant. Securing the homeland, warriors the children. Pass the torch, pass the torch to me, brother. Pass the torch to me, brother, they trying to burn us down. Passing the torch. Passing the torch to my brother, passing the torch to my brother, don't let him burn us down. Pass the torch. Pass the torch. Freedom is just a sensation, wrapped in glorification, force feeding complacence, teach the sheep to be patient, and expands generations, a great deception we're facing, a salute to Freemasons, one nation under surveillance, that's a harsh realization, they just waiting to touch you, ain't no need to confront you, they got you right where they want you, cops are corporate Gestapo, flex their arms to enforce, it's open season on villains, killing civilians for sport, a government for the people, long as we just keep calm, millions of voices ignored, is it not clear something's wrong, they like a devil to all we need is a window, symphony of injustice about to reach its crescendo Remember Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Jordan Baker, Arthur Sterling, Tans Crutcher Many lives destroyed by hatred, light a candle for Philando Cops bust sides like Rambo, who ain't gonna stand up, bust back If y'all fed up, say fuck that Torch, pass the torch to me brother, pass the torch to me brother They trying to burn us down, passing the torch Passing the torch to my brother, passing the torch to my brother Don't let them burn us down Serve or protect as my head is on the curb and you standing on my neck. Say my name for these shady plans built from hollow laws. It won't mimic the old days of Holocaust. Say my name for the victims of the jurisdiction. Those depicted as criminals fitting your description. Say my name for the misunderstood common man. For women abused, mistreated just like Sandra Bland. Say my name for those locked in the war zone. Those exposed up in cold just like Corey Jones. Say my name for those deleted at your discretion. Be prepared and aware for the resurrection.
a special mention to those no longer with us. Heath Ledger was an Australian actor, photographer, and music video director. Born Heath Andrew Ledger on April 4, 1979 in Perth, Western Australia, he played roles in several Australian television and film productions during the 1990s, and Ledger moved to the United States in 1998 to further develop his film career. His work consisted of 20 films, including 10 Things I Hate About You, The Patriot, A Knight's Tale, Monster's Ball, Lords of Dogtown, Brokeback Mountain, Candy, I'm Not There, The Dark Knight, and The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus the latter two being posthumous releases. He also produced and directed music videos and aspired to be a film director. For his portrayal in Ennis Del Mar and Brokeback Mountain, Ledger won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actor and the Best International Actor Award from the Australian Film Institute. He was the first actor to win the latter award posthumously. He was nominated for the BAFTA Award, Screen Actors Guild Award, Golden Globe Award, and the Academy Award for Best Actor, becoming the eighth youngest nominee in the category at that time. Posthumously, he shared the 2007 Independent Spirit Robert Altman Award with the rest of the ensemble cast, the director, and the casting director for the film I'm Not There, which was inspired by the life and songs of American singer-songwriter Bob Dylan. In the film, Ledger portrayed a fictional actor named Robbie Clark, one of six characters embodying aspects of Dylan's life and persona. A few months before his death, Ledger had finished filming his role as the Joker in The Dark Knight. At the time of his death, The Dark Knight was in post-production, and the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus was in the midst of filming, in which he was playing his last role as Tony. His death affected subsequent promotion of The Dark Knight. His performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight earned him universal acclaim and popularity from fans and critics alike. Ledger also received numerous posthumous awards for his work on The Dark Knight, including the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, Best Actor International Award at the 2008 Australian Film Institute Awards, the 2008 Los Angeles Film Critics Association Award for Best Supporting Actor, the 2009 Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actor Motion Picture, and the 2009 BAFTA Award for Best Supporting Actor. At about 3 p.m. on January 22, 2008, Ledger was found unconscious in his bed by his housekeeper, Teresa Solomon, and his masseuse, Diana Wallison, in his loft at 421 Broom Street in the Soho neighborhood of Manhattan. According to the police, Wallison, who had arrived early for a 3 p.m. appointment with Ledger, called Ledger's friend, Mary Kay Olson, for help. Olson, who was in California, directed a New York City private security guard to go to the scene. At 3.26 p.m., less than 15 minutes after she first saw him in bed and only a few moments after the first call to Miss Olson, Willison telephoned 911 to say that Mr. Ledger was not breathing. At the urging of the 911 operator, Willison administered CPR, which was unsuccessful in reviving him. Paramedics and emergency medical technicians arrived seven minutes later at 3.33 p.m., at almost exactly the same moment as a private security guard summoned by Miss Olson, but were also unable to revive him. At 3.36 p.m., Ledger was pronounced dead and his body was removed from the apartment. He was 28 years old. Anthony Perkins was an American actor, director, and singer. Born on April 4, 1932 in Manhattan, New York City, he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his second film, Friendly Persuasion, but his best remembered for playing Norman Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and its three sequels. His other films include Fear Strikes Out, The Matchmaker, On the Beach, Tall Story, The Trial, Phaedra, Five Miles to Midnight, Pretty Poison, Murder on the Orient Express, Mahogany, The Black Hole, North Sea Hijack, and Crimes of Passion. 
Perkins was diagnosed with HIV during the filming of Psycho 4, The Beginning, and died at his Los Angeles home on September 12, 1992 from age-related pneumonia at age 60. His urn inscribed, Don't Fence Me In, is an altar by a bench on the terrace of his former home in the Hollywood Hills. Maya Angelou was an American poet, memoirist, and civil rights activist. Born Marguerite Annie Johnson on April 4, 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri, she published seven autobiographies, three books of essays, several books of poetry, and is credited with a list of plays, movies, and television shows spanning over 50 years. She received dozens of awards and more than 50 honorary degrees. Angelo is best known for her series of seven autobiographies, which focus on her childhood and early adult experiences. The first, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, tells of her life up to the age of 17 and brought her international recognition and acclaim. She became a poet and writer after a string of odd jobs during her young adulthood. These included fry cook, sex worker, nightclub performer, Porgy and Bess cast member, Southern Christian Leadership Conference coordinator, and correspondent in Egypt and Ghana during the decolonization of Africa. She was also an actress, writer, director, and producer of plays, movies, and public television programs. In 1982, she was named the first Reynolds Professor of American Studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She was active in the civil rights movement and worked with Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Beginning in the 1990s, she made approximately 80 appearances a year on the lecture circuit, something she continued into her 80s. In 1993, Angelo recited her poem, On the Pulse of Morning, at the first inauguration of Bill Clinton, making her the first poet to make an inaugural recitation since Robert Frost at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy in 1961. With the publication of I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Angelo publicly discussed aspects of her personal life. She was respected as a spokesperson for black people and women, and her works have been considered a defense of black culture. Her works are widely used in schools and universities worldwide, although attempts have been made to ban her books from some U.S. libraries. Angelo's most celebrated works have been labeled as autobiographical fiction, but many critics consider them to be autobiographies. She made a deliberate attempt to challenge the common structure of the autobiography by critiquing, changing, and expanding the genre. Her books center on themes including racism, identity, family, and travel. Angelou died on the morning of May 28, 2014 at the age of 86. She was found by her nurse. Although Angelou had reportedly been in poor health and had canceled recent scheduled appearances, she was working on another book, an autobiography about her experiences with national and world leaders. During her memorial service at Wake Forest University, her son Guy Johnson stated that despite being in constant pain due to her dancing career and respiratory failure, she wrote four books during the last 10 years of her life. He said she left this mortal plane with no loss of acuity and no loss in comprehension. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1993, WrestleMania 9 aired. WrestleMania 9 was the ninth annual WrestleMania pay-per-view event produced by the World Wrestling Federation. The event took place at Caesars Palace in Paradise, Nevada on April 4, 1993 and was the first WrestleMania event held outdoors. WrestleMania 9 was built around two main storylines. The first was the seemingly unstoppable Yokozuna, challenging Bret Hart for the WWF Championship in the main event, a right he earned by winning the 1993 Royal Rumble. 
The other major storyline was the return of Hulk Hogan, who had departed the WWF following WrestleMania 8, but returned to team with Brutus Beefcake against the WWF Tag Team Champions Money Inc., Ted DiBiase and Erwin R. Scheister, aka IRS. Hogan and Beefcake lost the tag team match, but Hogan later faced Yokozuna for the title in an impromptu, unadvertised 22-second match after Yokozuna defeated Hart to win the championship. In addition, Shawn Michaels retained the Intercontinental Championship, though he lost his match against Sataka. The event itself has been panned by critics and fans alike. The most frequent criticism has been related to the match between The Undertaker and Giant Gonzalez, Hulk Hogan's title win, and the Roman togas worn by announcers. Both the pay-per-view buy rate and the attendance for the event dropped from the previous year's WrestleMania. Early TV promos for WrestleMania 9 ticket sales airing in December 1992 focused on shots of Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart, with quick shots of Doink the Clown, Razor Ramon, Crush, Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair, and Randy Savage also shown. Hogan had notably not appeared on WWF TV since April of that year. Flair would not be on the roster at the time of the event. Because WrestleMania 9 was held in Caesars Palace, the WWF promoted the event as the world's largest toga party. The arena was made to look like a Roman Colosseum, and the event featured guards, trumpeters, and several live animals. The company built on this theme by having the commentators, including debuting announcer Jim Ross, wear togas. Ring announcer Howard Finkel was also named Finkus Maximus for the day. Randy Savage came to the broadcast booth accompanied by women throwing flower petals and feeding him grapes while he rode on a couch carried by guards. Bobby Heenan made his entrance wearing a toga and riding a camel backwards. Hulk Hogan's visibly damaged eye was explained in the storyline as the result of Ted DiBiase hiring a group of men to attack Hogan before the match. In reality, the cause of injury has been open to debate. One theory is that Randy Savage punched Hogan because he believed that his ex-wife, Elizabeth Hewlett, had an affair with Hogan while Savage and Hewlett were married. The couple had divorced, however, in September of 1992. WWF officials claimed that the injury was the result of a jet ski accident. A match was scheduled between Bam Bam Bigelow and Kamala, but it was canceled due to time constraints before the event began. One of the feuds heading into the event was between Tatanka and the Intercontinental Champion Shawn Michaels. Tatanka was in the midst of an undefeated streak and had wrestled Michaels twice in the months leading up to WrestleMania 9. Tatanka pinned Michaels in a singles match on February 13, 1993 episode of WWF Superstars of Wrestling and later teamed with the Nasty Boys in a six-man match against Michaels and the Beverly Brothers. Tatanka pinned Michaels to win the, this match as well. Michaels was also feuding with Sensational Sherry, who stood in Tatanka's corner during the match. Sherry had been Michaels' valet. When Marty Jannetty tried to hit Michaels with a mirror, however, Michaels put Sherry in front of him to protect himself. Sherry's anger at getting hit over the head with a mirror caused her to turn on him at Royal Rumble 93. The match between the Steiner brothers and the Head Shrinkers had little background, although Offa, who managed the Head Shrinkers, claimed that his team would tear the Steiner's heads off. Doink the Clown and Crush had been feuding since January 2nd of 93 on the episode of WWF Superstars of Wrestling. After Crush's match on that show, he confronted Doink, who had thrown a ball at a child in the audience. Crush grabbed Doink by the arm and warned him not to play any more pranks on children. Doink, wearing a cast on the arm that Crush had supposedly injured by grabbing, came to ringside during Crush's match on January 18th on an episode of WWF Monday Night Raw. He apologized to Crush and gave him a flower. When Crush walked away, Doink removed a prosthetic arm from his cast and attacked Crush, who was later taken away in an ambulance due to kayfabe or a storyline injury. 
For storyline purposes, Crush was said to be too injured to compete in the 93 Royal Rumble match. Doink continued his pranks by squirting Crush with a water pistol and recording video messages to Crush, which showed two Doinks on the screen. The feud between the Mega Maniacs, Brutus Beefcake and Hulk Hogan, and the WWF Tag Team Champions, Money Inc., stemmed from a legitimate parasailing accident in 1990 that forced Beefcake to undergo reconstructive surgery to his face. He was unable to wrestle again until February 15, 1993, on an episode of Raw. He faced DiBiase in his return match, after which DiBiase and Shyster attacked him. DiBiase held Beefcake for Shyster to hit him in the face with a briefcase, but Jimmy Hart, who managed Money Inc. at the time, repeatedly got in the way before Shyster shoved him out of the ring. Shyster then hit Beefcake in the face with the briefcase. Hart later claimed that he felt the need to step up and do the right thing, and that he had a change of heart, and his intervention led to him becoming a babyface or a crowd favorite. Shortly thereafter, Hulk Hogan made his return to the WWF and joined with Beefcake and manager Jimmy Hart to form the Mega Maniacs and challenge Money Inc. for the WWF Tag Team Championship. Mr. Perfect's rivalry with Bobby Heenan dated back to Survivor Series of 92. Perfect and Ric Flair were managed by Heenan, but Perfect turned on Flair and Heenan by agreeing to face them as part of a tag team match in Survivor Series. Flair feuded briefly with Perfect, but left the company to return to World Championship Wrestling. Lex Luger had joined Vince McMahon's World Bodybuilding Federation, but he signed with McMahon's WWF when the bodybuilding company failed. He made his debut at Royal Rumble 93, where he was unveiled as Heenan's latest wrestler, Narcissus although the ring name would change later to Narcissus Lex Luger. The Undertaker's feud with Giant Gonzalez was an offshoot of The Undertaker's feud with manager Harvey Whippleman. The Undertaker defeated Kamala, who was managed by Whippleman, in SummerSlam of 92. A rematch was held at Survivor Series 92, and The Undertaker beat Kamala in a coffin match. Whippleman vowed revenge, and he introduced Gonzalez at Royal Rumble 93 and instructed him to attack The Undertaker. The Undertaker was eliminated from the Royal Rumble match as a result of the interference, and a match was scheduled between The Undertaker and Giant Gonzalez for WrestleMania 9. Beginning with his debut with the company in 92, Yokozuna was pushed by the WWF as an unstoppable monster heel. Weighing over 500 pounds, he used the Bonsai Drop, a move in which he jumped from the second rope and sat on his opponent's chest to defeat several of the WWF's biggest stars. In a notable match on the February 6, 1993 episode of WWF Superstars of Wrestling, Yokozuna attacked Hacksaw Jim Duggan and performed the Bunzai Drop four times. Due to the kayfabe injuries from the attack, Duggan was unable to wrestle for over two months. Yokozuna earned a title shot against WWF champion Bret Hart by winning the 1993 Royal Rumble match. During the contract signing, Yokozuna attacked Hart and performed the Bunzai Drop on him. In the Intercontinental Championship match, Tatanka was awarded the victory by countout, but did not win the championship because titles can only change hands as a result of a pinfall or submission. Luna Vachon attacked Sensational Sherry after the match by pulling her off the ring apron and delivering a devastating clothesline, a body slam, and kicks to the ribs. Tatanka had to help Sherry make it to the back to the dressing rooms. However, she would be attacked again at the first aid station by Vachon, who choked her, hit her head against the wall, and dropped the machine on top of her, and then Vachon was arrested by security. 
In the next match between the Steiner brothers and the Head Shrinkers, the advantage switched back and forth several times as the Steiners threw the Head Shrinkers with several suplex variations and used their aerial abilities to attack their opponents from the ring ropes. The Head Shrinkers relied mainly on using their power to wear down the Steiners. At one point, Fatu picked Rick Steiner upon his shoulders so that Samu could attack Rick from the top rope. Rick caught Samu instead and performed a body slam on Samu from Fatu's shoulders. The match ended with Scott Steiner performing a Frankensteiner to pin Samu to win the match. Crush attacked Doink the Clown outside the ring prior to the next match. After getting Doink inside the ring, Crush used his strength advantage to overpower Doink. Doink gained the advantage but missed two attacks from the top rope. Crush used more power moves to wear down Doink and Doink tried to crawl under the ring. Crush forced Doink back into the ring and performed the Cranium Crunch, a head vice submission hold on Doink. Doink pulled himself to the ropes and broke the hold. Doink hit the referee and knocked him unconscious. As a result of this stage ref bump, a second Doink, the clown, was able to interfere. He hit Crush with a prosthetic arm which enabled the first Doink to win by pinfall when the referee regained consciousness. Razor Ramon faced Bob Backlund next. Ramon used his power to dominate the majority of the match, but Backlund used hip tosses to attempt a comeback. Ramon won the match in under 4 minutes by pinning Backlund with a small package. In the following match, Money Inc. defended their WWF Tag Team Championship against the Mega Maniacs. Beefcake wore a protective titanium face mask because of his injured face, and Hulk Hogan came to the ring with a black eye, which led the announcers to speculate about the cause. Money Inc. gained the early advantage, but DiBiase soon injured himself by hitting Beefcake's mask. Hogan and Beefcake brawled with their enemies and controlled the match until Money Inc. was counted out. Referee Earl Ebner announced, however, that he would strip them of their title if they did not return to the ring and continue the match. DiBiase returned to the ring and rendered Hogan unconscious with the Million Dollar Dream chokehold. Beefcake attacked DiBiase by applying a sleeper hold and then turned his attention to Shyster, but DiBiase hit him in the back with Shyster's briefcase. Money Inc. attacked Beefcake and removed his face mask, but Beefcake fought back and applied a sleeper hold to Shyster. The referee was accidentally knocked unconscious, and Hogan recovered and attacked both members of Money Inc. with Beefcake's face mask. He tried to make the cover for a pinfall, but the referee was still unconscious. Manager Jimmy Hart turned his jacket inside out to reveal a striped referee jacket he made three count and declared the Mega Maniacs the winners of the match. Referee Danny Davis came to the ring and disqualified Hogan for using the face mask as a weapon. Money Inc. won the match and retained their championship, but the Mega Maniacs threw them out of the ring and opened Shyster's briefcase to reveal stacks of cash. They celebrated in the ring and threw the money into the crowd. Lex Luger was accompanied to the ring by four women dressed in bikinis as he was prepared to face Mr. Perfect. The match began with technical wrestling and Perfect tried to injure Luger's knee while Luger worked on Perfect's back. Perfect took control of the match with a power slam and tried to pin Luger after performing a drop kick from the top rope. Luger's foot was on the ropes, however, so the referee halted the three count and continued the match. Luger gained momentum and pinned Perfect. Perfect's feet were on the rope, but the referee did not see them. Luger continued to attack Perfect after the match and hit him with his forearm, which contains a steel plate as a result of a legitimate motorcycle accident. When Perfect got up, he chased Luger but was attacked by Shawn Michaels backstage. In the next match, The Undertaker faced Giant Gonzalez. Both men tried to use their size and power to control the match. Gonzalez used a reverse chin lock to wear The Undertaker down and attacked him outside the ring. 
The Undertaker regained control of the match and knocked Gonzalez onto his knees. Harvey Whippleman threw Gonzalez a rag soaked with chloroform, with Gonzalez used to knock The Undertaker unconscious. The referee disqualified Gonzalez for using a foreign object and awarded the match to Undertaker. After the match, The Undertaker recovered and attacked Giant Gonzalez. In the main event and final scheduled match on the card, Bret Hart defended the WWF Championship against Yokozuna. Hart tried to use his technical wrestling abilities against Yokozuna, while Yokozuna relied on his size advantage in the match. Hart gained control at the beginning, but Yokozuna came back with a clothesline, a leg drop, and a nerve hold. Hart regained the advantage when Yokozuna missed a running splash. Yokozuna applied another nerve hold, but missed a running splash again. He recovered and carried Hart to the middle of the ring, but Hart removed the protective padding on the turnbuckle in the corner of the ring. He threw Yokozuna's head into the turnbuckle and applied the sharpshooter, his signature submission hold that stretches the opponent's legs and back. Mr. Fuji, Yokozuna's manager, threw salt in Hart's eyes, which enabled Yokozuna to pin Hart and win the WWF Championship. After the match, Hulk Hogan came to the ring to check on Hart's condition. Hogan stated during an interview earlier in the broadcast that he wanted to face the winner of the match, and Fuji challenged Hogan to face Yokozuna immediately in an impromptu bout. Hogan agreed and entered the ring. Fuji tried to throw salt in Hogan's eyes, but he missed and the salt hit Yokozuna. Hogan performed a leg drop and pinned Yokozuna to win the title in 22 seconds. WrestleMania 9 received overwhelmingly negative reviews. The event has received criticism for what some reviewers have perceived as a poorly booked event. Writing for Slam Wrestling, John Powell states that aside from the Intercontinental and Tag Team Championship matches and the scantily clad women that accompanied Lex Luger to the ring, the rest of the broadcast was poor. He is also critical of some of the outfits worn for the event, notably Jim Ross's toga and Giant Gonzalez's spray-painted suit. Reviewing the event for Online Onslaught, Adam Gutschmidt claims that several of the matches flowed poorly and had ill-conceived conclusions. He also claims that the match between Giant Gonzalez and The Undertaker was a dud and that Hulk Hogan's ego made the conclusion the worst WrestleMania ending ever. R.D. Reynolds, owner of website WrestleCrap, has inducted the event into the site's list of the very worst in pro wrestling. He cites Giant Gonzalez, Papa Shango, Luger's narcissist gimmick, and Jim Ross wearing a toga as his reasons for including the event in the list. Despite not being the greatest pay-per-view, you still had your moments. Happy 28th anniversary, WrestleMania 9. Brother. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast, and I cannot stress this enough. I can't emphasize this enough. I mean this from the bottom of my my heart. Stone Mountain, fuck yourself. And I'm about to go watch this versus with the Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind, and Fire. Y'all be cool. Peace.